0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Religion. I'm Philip Michael Sherman, a host of the channel. Our guest today is Daniel Dreisbach, a professor in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at American University in Washington, D.C. His book is entitled Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. No book was more accessible or familiar to the American founders than the Bible, and no book was more frequently alluded to or quoted from in the political discourse of the age. How and for what purposes did the founding generation use the Bible? How did the Bible influence their political culture? Shedding new light on some of the most familiar rhetoric of the founding era, Daniel Dreisbach analyzes the founders' diverse use of scripture, ranging from the literary to the theological. He shows that they look to the Bible for insights on human nature, civic virtue, political authority, and the rights and duties of citizens, as well as for political and legal models to emulate. They quoted scripture to authorize civil resistance, to invoke divine blessings for righteous nations, and to provide the language of liberty that would be appropriated by patriotic Americans. Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers broaches the perennial question of whether the American founding was, to some extent, informed by religious, specifically Christian, ideas. In the sense that the founding generation were members of a biblically literate society that placed the Bible at the center of culture and discourse, The answer to that question is clearly yes. Ignoring the Bible's influence on the founders, Dreisbach warns, produces a distorted image of the American political experiment and of the concept of self-government on which America is built.
1: Welcome, Dr. Dreisbach. Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Our first question is always biographical. Can you tell us something about your uh, academic background, how you came to study this uh, material, and what led you to write this book?
1: Well, uh, when people ask me what I study, I typically say I study the intersection of religion, politics, and law in American public life, in particular the American founding era. And I would say that uh, my educational background really set me up uh, for that particular uh, subject matter. I will say, as a child, I was exposed to good literature. My parents introduced me to to history and and biography, and I thrived on that and enjoyed reading history. Uh, In college, I studied government. Uh, I went on to graduate school where I studied uh, constitutionalism, American constitutionalism, in particular, church-state relationships. And uh, one of the things that you'll discover very quickly when you start Looking at church-state law, is that American courts have said that this area of law is very much informed by their understanding of history. Uh, in particular, the contribution of the American foundings to a uh, founders to a model of church-state relationships. And so in studying church-state law and church-state relationships, I was drawn into this history that courts have relied on, and that was very much a part of my graduate study. I went on to uh, law school where, again, I was focusing on First Amendment church-state issues, uh, and that uh, simply helped me further develop my interests in that area. And so now for uh, the last uh, 25 years or so, I've been uh, teaching American law, American constitutionalism, and uh, it's I, I, I teach in a very a multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary department, which allows me to bring together my interests in history, law, religion, sociology, and the like, and so uh, I'm I'm very happy uh, in that particular uh, sort of intellectual location.
0: Just to ask a very basic question before we get into some of the arguments in your book. How do you go about defining? Uh, the founders in the period of the founding of this nation?
1: So very, uh, very simply, I, I when I say the American founding era, I am generally speaking of the last third or so of the 18th century. This is a time in the life of the nation when Americans begin to articulate their rights as Englishmen, believing that they weren't being fully recognized by crown and parliament and failing to persuade uh, their English uh, colonial masters to recognize those rights, they then begin to fight for, agitate for independence. And having secured independence, uh, they then have this arduous task of putting together new nations, writing new constitutions and the like. And so when I speak of the founding era, uh, that's this time uh, that I am referring to, and when I speak of the American founders, I'm I'm really thinking here of a very large company of individuals, uh, not simply the famous five or six that we oftentimes uh, think of, uh, but rather I'm I'm thinking of many many hundreds, if not thousands, of of first colonialists and then uh, those uh, members of an independent uh, uh, state and nation who are key in articulating the rights of Americans, uh, writing constitutions, fighting for independence, uh, and the like, I, I have in mind here, clearly political leaders, but also citizen soldiers, I'm thinking of polemicists and pamphleteers who are key in articulating these issues, as well as patriot preachers who expressed many of the ideas of the American founding from their pulpits and and were critical in disseminating ideas. Uh, And so that's what I have in mind when I speak of the founding era and the American founders.
0: You suggest early on that a good deal of contemporary scholarship on this time period uh, fails to take account of the significant role that biblical literature played. I wonder if you can say something about why you think uh, the role of the Bible as a political document has perhaps not always received its its uh, due study in, in uh, this kind of uh, overview of history
1: well if, when you look at the historiography of the American founding era, much emphasis, and, and quite appropriately, is given to the influence of liberal Enlightenment ideas, and this expresses itself in a variety of forms, uh, from the Scottish Enlightenment, British Enlightenment, there are continental versions of Enlightenment, and yes, all of these uh, play a part in influencing American thought. There's also a great emphasis given to uh, Republican thought, both the influence of the ancients, let's say the ancient, uh, the Romans, as well as more modern Republicans, uh, people like Machiavelli, uh, for example. uh, Also, much attention is given to the influence of British constitutionalism. And my point is not to discount or dismiss these other intellectual influences in any way. I simply make the argument that in looking at the intellectual influences on the american founding the bible christianity in general have to be a part of that mix if we're going to appreciate the full range of ideas that are informing political thought and action and, and the question of why not why more attention has not been given to christianity and the bible i think is an interesting one i think in you know one simple uh, answer is because it's everywhere. It's kind of like the air you breathe, where it's everywhere. You don't tend to notice it or give it the attention that it's due. Um, I think there are other explanations. Uh, if, if, If we think of the American founding period as that moment that, let's say, last third of the 18th century. uh, Notice where it's located. It's located between two great religious revivals, uh, at least as the history is often told uh, of of American history. And and so certainly by comparison to the fervor uh, and the rhetoric of the First Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening, Some of the religious language and themes may seem muted by comparison, and so that may explain in part why uh, we don't give more attention to Christianity, religion, the Bible in in that last third of the 18th century. I think another explanation has to do with the biblical illiteracy of our own age. Uh, There is so much, uh, uh, so many references and allusions to the Bible in the rhetoric and discourse of the American founding. Um, and, And it's, it's often the language of the King James Bible. That would have been the English language translation most commonly used in America at this time. And those who, those in, the audience who know the King James Bible know that there's a very distinct way of phrasing words. There's a distinct cadence to the King James Bible. And But if you don't know it, you may not pick it up. And when you're reading some of this literature from late 18th century America, the Bible is so frequently quoted or referenced, but without quotation marks or without citations, which I think tells us that This was language that was uttered in a very biblically literate culture, so literate that you didn't need those kinds of references to tip off the audience that you were quoting the Bible. But if you're not familiar with that King James language, it's very easy in the 21st century not to notice that that is the source of that language. I think another explanation is that there are certainly ideas that are being expressed, biblical ideas, or I should say perhaps more, uh, I think more accurately, religiously oriented ideas are being expressed in the late 18th century. That seems very foreign or alien to a 21st century mind, to our own 21st century sensibilities. And let me give you one example. In, In one of the most famous of all uh, uh, speeches or political writings in american history george washington's farewell address in september seventeen ninety seven uh, almost certainly the most famous line in that in that address uh, deals with religion. He says very famously he says of all the habits and dispositions which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports Now that would have been a very commonplace. A statement when it was made. It's perhaps a little bit more controversial in our own time, but what's very interesting is what he goes on to say in the very next sentence. He says, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these firmest props of human happiness. Now, uh, again, this probably wasn't a very controversial statement in its own time, but if I if I read him correctly, he's saying If you're laboring to undermine religion and morality, you can't call yourself a patriot. Now, that's very much out of step with 21st century sensibilities. And so I think perhaps there's a level of discomfort with some aspects of religion's influence on a late 18th century culture that makes it very easy for us in the 21st century to push these ideas to the margins of our discussion of this time period.
0: Well, let me ask you another sort of methodological question before we start looking at some specific texts and themes that you've isolated uh, that are, are biblical during this founding generation. You talk about the Bible's influence, and you've already mentioned that sometimes this influence is unmarked, um, simply elusive in nature. So what, what kinds of influence do you see the biblical text having? How do you recognize it? And uh, what are your sources then in these founding documents for oscillating biblical influence?
1: Well, let me first uh, concede that tracing the threads of intellectual influence can sometimes be very difficult. It can be a very messy uh, enterprise, and it's and it can be difficult at times to, to trace those lines of influence with certainty. Um but I think that one sees influence manifesting itself in a variety of ways. Sometimes that that influence is manifested in direct ways. And let me give you an example. Uh, I, I, I write in the book about a, a debate in the Constitutional Convention uh, over uh, the kinds of leadership that we would look for in this new constitutional republic. And Benjamin Franklin gives a speech in which he draws explicitly from the book of Exodus. Uh, He is referring to uh, a a passage, Exodus 1821. And this is, uh, if you recall the context, the children of Israel have just crossed over the Red Sea and all of the burdens and responsibilities of leadership have fallen on Moses's shoulders. And he's working himself from sunup to sundown, and his father-in-law, Jethro, comes to him and says, Moses, you're going to need some help in, in governing uh, these people. He says, you should look for leaders to help you, to assist you, men uh, 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 of who fear God, who love truth, men of ability, who hate covetousness. And and this is his his profile of the ideal leader. And interestingly, in this substantive debate in the Constitutional Convention, Benjamin Franklin goes to that particular text, and he tells us we can get guidance here uh, from Scripture. And then he quotes uh, a phrase from Exodus eighteen twenty-one. Now, here's an example of where you see a, a, a some direct influence, where the where the actor himself is is tipping us off where the source of his idea is coming from. Now more often than not, this influence of the Bible or Christianity comes in some indirect ways. Uh, And let me give you some examples of of what I have in mind here. Um, There are a number of provisions, uh, one could argue, in the Constitution that reflect biblical ideas, but they come in a very indirect fashion. And one common uh, way in which Uh, the Bible works its way into the American legal tradition and even the American Constitution, I would argue, is by way of the common law of England. Common law being that system of jurisprudence that was developed in England that the colonists brought with them to the new world. And it's, it's long been acknowledged by the authorities of common law in England that there are Profound biblical ideas that are manifested in common law, and the colonists would have brought that with them. And here's, a, here's an example or two. Uh, in the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution, there's a prohibition on double jeopardy. That is, you cannot try someone twice for the same events. Now, it's been long argued in the common law tradition that this was an idea that was expressed in a late fourth century commentary from St. Jerome, who was interpreting the work of the prophet Nahum, chapter 1, verse 9. And St. Jerome viewed this as a prohibition on trying someone twice, from St. Jerome, this idea works its way into the law of the church, canon law, and eventually works its way into the common law. It comes across the Atlantic to colonial laws and ends up in the uh, in the American Constitution. Now, this is a, a, a lineage that has been studied by scholars for centuries. We could perhaps debate the accuracy of this claim, but the suggestion here is that there's an indirect way in which the Bible worked its way into uh, the American legal tradition. Or another example might be something like the prohibition on cruel and unusual punishments. Uh, Oftentimes, common law commentators would tie this to uh, uh, various aspects of Mosaic law. For example, the the law that says you can't uh, uh, beat someone above 40 stripes, uh, placing a limit on how severe punishment could be. Uh, Now, I want to be very cautious here. I would not suggest that ideas like cruel and unusual punishment only find expression in common law or even in mosaic law. But rather, I would suggest that as these ideas manifest themselves in the American legal culture is probably working its way through common law, stretching back to uh, a, a biblical source at some point.
0: The larger second half of your book then turns its attention to particular biblical texts and themes associated with those texts. Um, so, for instance, uh the nature of liberty against tyranny, uh, or or the character of a, a godly magistrate, I'm wondering if you could give us a few examples of biblical texts that were clearly important to the founding generation, that were doing political uh, work, and and how they used those texts to develop themes that became um, really significant in the early years of, of the nation.
1: Yep. Well, uh, a number of scholars uh, have looked at well uh, at what were the the biblical texts uh, that were most frequently referred to by the American founding generation, <clears throat> and uh, one scholar has suggested that the text that was most frequently cited during the American War for Independence was Romans. Chapter 13, the first seven verses, and that's not going to surprise us because this goes to the very heart of the citizen's responsibility to be in submission to those in authority over them. And, and there's no doubt that Romans 13 poses a serious question, a serious challenge to that believer, that, uh, that uh, follower of Christ who desires to, to resist uh, those in authority. And uh, what we find is there is a long tradition in, uh, in the West of looking seriously at Romans 13 and asking the question whether it allows for uh, resistance to a tyrannical or an unrighteous ruler. And interestingly, in the American founding period, you often saw ministers interpreting Romans 13. Now, the Loyalist tended to interpret it in a very literal way saying that it's never right or it's rarely appropriate to resist a ruler but you found many patriot preachers on the other hand offering a somewhat nuanced interpretation of Romans 13 oftentimes in conjunction with other biblical texts a very uh, a very favorite text Uh, would have been Acts chapter 5. This is a text where we read about how the apostles of Christ were were thrown in jail for preaching in the temple precincts. And the angel of the Lord came out, came down and released them from jail and instructed them to go back and preach. And they were rearrested when they went back to preach. And they were brought before the elders uh, and the rulers of the jurisdiction, and when reminded that they had been told not to preach in the temple, they said, we must obey God rather than man. And so you see this interesting sort of uh, clash, if you will, between uh, a conventional reading of Romans 13 that says, be in submission to those in authority over you, versus uh, this this uh, text in Acts chapter 5 that says, You've got to obey God rather than man. And sometimes when man, a human ruler, compels that, which is contrary to what God instructs, you have to disobey the civil ruler. And so you see a theology developed um, or being articulated in America that goes something like this, uh, that, yes, the Christian is instructed to be in obedience to to the civil ruler. But the civil ruler is mandated by God to serve the public good. And when a civil ruler ceases to serve the public good, that ruler, in a sense, deposes himself and is no longer uh, owed a duty of obedience. And in fact, the citizen has a right to resist, uh, has an obligation to resist a civil magistrate who is not serving the public good and there were american patriots who said this is precisely what permits us what authorizes us in the face of romans 13 to resist a tyrannical and i use that word cautiously a tyrannical parliament a tyrannical george iii but it's a debate where it's taking place in the context of these biblical passages What are some
0: other texts? You point to, for example, Proverbs 14.34 to talk about what a righteous nation should look like. How were the texts from these uh, biblical sources used to sort of provide models for either a good ruler or a good society?
1: Well, I have a chapter, as you say, in the book on Proverbs 14.34, righteousness uh, exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach. Uh, to her people. Uh, Another chapter I have side by side with that is a a chapter on Proverbs 29.2, when the righteous rule, the people rejoice, but when the wicked beareth authority, the people groan or the people mourn. Um, And these were two texts, that were extremely popular in uh, in election sermons. Now this uh, this bears a little bit of a of a of a context here. A very popular genre in New England, going way back to the earliest days of the Puritan uh, colony. But continuing well into the 19th, even early 20th century, it was it was common on the day of the opening of a legislative session for the legislature to invite a minister to come before the, the legislature in front of the governor, uh, lieutenant governor, the judicial officers of that colony, and to preach a sermon appropriate for the occasion. And not surprisingly, these two texts, Proverbs 29.2 and, and Proverbs 14.34, were the most common texts uh, for, the, uh, for the ministers uh, to, to preach on on such an occasion. Um, I, I've, I've given a, a hint of how uh, the Proverbs 29.2 uh, was used. Uh, it was an occasion to describe what are the marks, what are the characteristics of a righteous ruler, and uh, common texts um, that were read alongside Proverbs 29:2 was one that I've just mentioned, Exodus 18:21, where Jethro uh, describes to Moses what are the characteristics of a good ruler, someone who fears God, loves truth, uh, hates covetousness, who has Uh, the abilities uh, necessary for leadership. Um, So this was a very common uh, text that was incorporated into these election sermons. And and there would be an extensive discussion. Well, what does it mean uh, to hate covetousness? Or what does it mean for a ruler to fear God? So there was a discussion of these kinds of things. Another favorite text comes from the, um, I think, first Samuel, uh, uh, King David's dying speech, his deathbed speech, where he, too, comes back to this theme of what does a righteous ruler look like? What are the marks of a righteous ruler? And again, this was read alongside a text like Proverbs 29, 2 and in, in this instruction this intimate instruction from a minister to the legislature to the elected rulers of a colony later the state that would literally be in front of the preacher as he would as he would exhort them on what does it mean to hate covetousness and, and these other marks of, of righteousness
0: I wonder if you can say something about this metaphor of the vine and fig tree and how you see uh, this image uh in many places throughout the founding generation, of, of what a peaceable society looks like.
1: Yeah, this is a, it's a beautiful image here, uh, an image that comes straight out of the, the uh, Hebrew Scriptures. Um, this idea of, of a time when every man shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree. This is a, a metaphor that uh, is mentioned on more than one occasion uh, in the Hebrew Scriptures, Uh, In my book, I devote a chapter to it. I give special attention to George Washington's use of the vine and fig tree metaphor. Uh, We know from his surviving papers that he he used this metaphor, at least he referenced this metaphor, which he was taking from the book of the prophet Micah. Micah chapter four, verse four. This is a Uh, Ancient Hebrew blessing, it's also a prophetic vision of a new Jerusalem sometime in the future. And George Washington uses this metaphor almost 50 times that we know of from his surviving papers. And he almost always uses it in connection with his longing to return to Mount Vernon, uh, his his beloved home on the south bank of the Potomac River. Uh, this was the this was the place that uh, of his dreams. He loved Mount Vernon, and yet he was willing to give up uh, life at Mount Vernon for many years uh, of public service. First as commander in chief of the Continental Army, away for seven or eight years, and then uh, away for another eight years from Mount Vernon when he served as president of the United States. And it's a very rich metaphor that I would suggest that that Washington truly understood, and, and he really teased out uh, the various aspects of this blessing of living in safety under the vine and fig tree. It, it's a metaphor of, of a life freedom, free from want, free from covetousness, of having a contentment in those things that one has as the fruit of one's own labor without coveting your neighbor's vine or your neighbor's fig tree. It's also a metaphor metaphor for hospitality. And George and Martha Washington um, were were, uh, great in exhibiting hospitality, uh, literally Every time they sat down for a meal at Mount Vernon, Uh, there were four or five guests, many of whom were uninvited, travelers who just stopped in at Mount Vernon. And and Washington appreciated that the vine and fig tree was a metaphor for hospitality. Uh, Interestingly enough, it's been said in the last 20 years of their marriage, there were only two evenings, two evenings in 20 years when George and Martha dined alone. Uh, a, tremendous, uh, a tremendous record of hospitality. It was also a metaphor for the blessing of owning private property. Uh, and a and, uh, number of the founders used the metaphor in connection with property rights, most notably John Dickinson in one of his letters of an American farmer that was very instrumental in galvanizing American uh, views on their rights as, as Englishmen in the wake of the Stamp Act crisis. Um, another, um, uh, another feature of this, of this vine and fig tree was the freedom from fear, freedom from fear. Uh, you might recall in the preceding verse, Micah 4.3, there's a discussion of, of a time when nations will beat their, their, their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And, and so it's a beautiful image of a life free from fear, in particular, freedom from the fear of war. But there's another theme that I I explore in the book, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this because this seems to be an American innovation of the vine and fig tree metaphor. You don't see this discussed, at least I haven't encountered it being discussed in European literature, and that is Americans come to see life under the vine and fig tree as a metaphor for religious liberty, this idea that you can come to America, you can Thrive under your own vine and fig tree, and you can believe according to the dictates of your conscience. And, and Americans begin to develop this aspect uh, of the theme. And I, I find it fascinating this, this sort of distinctly American way of reading the vine and fig tree metaphor. I
0: have two questions that are not properly about the book, but about sort of the experience of researching and writing this kind of book. I think this is probably one of the more inherently interdisciplinary works that I've come across. By my count, you bring together the study of history, religion, law, Bible, political theory. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about sort of what challenges that posed, uh, in what ways that was really perhaps exciting, and where you felt um, really challenged by trying to bring together this many academic discourses uh, in one place. Yeah.
1: Well, I am I am by nature drawn to uh, interdisciplinary topics. Uh, while I'm by no means an expert on 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 all these topics, I I do love this this messy intersection between law, politics, history, sociology, theology, all of these things coming together. Um, I uh, my training, as I indicated earlier, is in government and politics as well as in law. Um, I've also studied uh, over the years and I I enjoy an appointment in a history department. So I do have uh, some disciplinary background uh, in those particular fields. But as you say, this is a book that also draws in um, subjects of biblical interpretation, theology um, and uh, uh, literature, uh, rhetoric And and I I would readily concede that uh, those are not my areas of expertise. So one of the things I try to do uh, is I try to consult very, very widely with people who are experts in some of these fields that are are beyond areas of my own training. Uh, So as I was working on this book, I was always and uh, I'm very grateful for those who gave of their time and talent to assist me in this regard. But I was always sharing bits and pieces uh, of the manuscript uh, to those who do have expertise uh, in, in some of these fields uh, beyond my own area of training, uh, asking for their input um, and, and their advice. Um, uh, so uh, I love the interdisciplinary nature, but it is, as you say, very much a challenge. And, and the only way I really know how to do it is to read widely, uh, read deeply, and to consult as many people as you can who do bring that uh, expertise that, that can assist you.
0: One last question. Uh, and this is more about the contemporary reception of this work. At the beginning of your book, you you preempt, I think, a couple of potential misreadings. Uh, and most directly, you assert that the uh, quote central claim or thesis of this book is not that America is a Christian nation. Uh, end quote. Throughout reading this book, I, I wonder how you how you felt about the ways the book might be utilized for contemporary debates around the role of religion in American politics and American life? Uh, Is that a question you just thought, I'm I'm doing history, I don't have to consider those kinds of questions, how people are going to read this? Uh, Or were you thinking a little bit about how this work might contribute to an ongoing discussion in this country about both what this country was founded as and how it has changed over the course of uh, a couple centuries.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm, I am was certainly mindful that there were aspects and features of this book that would play into uh, contemporary discussions of of whether America was founded as a Christian nation or not. Uh, I, I will say that it probably wasn't uh, a question that was always at the forefront of my mind. I, I wanted to follow the leads. I wanted to follow the literature as I read it. And this is a book where I ra- relied uh, Uh, quite extensively, almost exclusively on primary sources. Um, I do try to bring in in the notes some of the secondary literature that is helpful. Um, But uh, I I started with the primary sources and and worked out, so to speak. Uh, And so I was uh, trying to follow uh, these sources where they would lead me without Primarily being concerned, but not ignorant of the implications of. Uh The material I was discussing for these contemporary debates. Um, As you can well imagine, when I speak uh, with with various audiences on the subject matter of this book, uh, very frequently a question that I'm asked is is the one that uh, is implicit in your question, which is, was America founded as a Christian nation or not? And and my response is always this. Uh, I, I first have to understand, what do you mean or what do we mean by the term Christian nation? I can think of a variety of conceptions or definitions of such a term and so uh, when I when I hear people engaged in these debates today I'm always struck that they don't always understand what their uh, what what the person they're discussing this topic with means by this core uh, core term and so they often end up talking past each other and so one of the things I do uh, do in the book is I I start very early by defining very clearly some of the key terms that I'm going to be using, um, because I think if we're going to have a discussion about the influence of religion uh, on the nation and its founding, we have to understand the key terms uh, of, of that debate, of that discussion. Now, having said that, uh, I, I express in the book, and it's come up here in our, in our brief conversation, and that is, uh, there's a lot of literature out there that, in my opinion, does not fully acknowledge the important role played by Christianity in the Bible, in the political controversy of the American founding. And I think by taking on this subject, we better understand ourselves as a people, as a nation, where we have come from. Um, and so I don't sh- try to shy away from what might be some of the political implications in current debates, but simply acknowledge the important role that religion, Christianity, and the Bible have, has played in the broad sweep of American history. And, and, and then we can, we can go from there and engage on the implications of that for some of these contemporary debates later on.
0: Once again, the book is Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers, and the author is Daniel Dreisbach. Thank you, Dr. Dreisbach.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.